Okay, so uh, let us get started. Uh, welcome everyone this evening. First of all, an apology for the lack of tea and biscuits. Uh, not quite sure what happened, but we have been assured they will arrive in the break. Um, so we're going to set up, if, if it all goes well, they'll set up not too noisily outside. So we'll have a slightly longer break than normal so you can fuel yourself up with the necessary tea. So we're delighted uh, this evening to have Nick Jones with us. Uh, Nick is known to several of you in the room, I believe. Some of you may even have taught him at some point or been colleagues uh, as a PhD student at Birkbeck, I understand. Uh, now at the University of Birmingham, and Nick is going to talk on propositions and cognitive relation. Before he gets going, can I just check if anyone does not have the handout? We, we all, we're all good for handouts. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's very nice to be invited. So, when, when one is engaged in kind of metaphysical theorizing about ontological categories, I think there are kind of broadly two kinds of approach that one can take. I call them a Quinean approach and a type theoretic approach. So, the guiding idea behind the Quinean approach is that when one is uh, generalizing over entities drawn from different ontological categories, one uses the same kind of quantification each time. In particular, one uses first-order quantification each time. So if one wants to assert generalizations over the objects, you say things like, there is some first-order x such that x is an object and phi of x, whatever it is. Whereas if you want to say that it's a property, there is a property such that phi use the same kind of first order quantification, but you replace the kind of restricting predicate is an object with is a property. So you say there is some x, x is a property, and x is such that phi. The key idea behind the type theoretic approach is that instead of using the same first order quantification to generalize over entities of arbitrary categories, you use quantification on variables of different semantic types in order to generalize over different categories, in order to express generalizations about different categories of entity. And what that allows you to do is to replace these kind of special purpose restricting predicates, is an object and is a property, with uh, new special categories of variable. We'll say more about exactly what this amounts to shortly. So if you want to say something like there is an object, you might use a first order variable in singular term position, say there is some little x such that phi. Whereas if one wants to express generalizations about properties, you'll use variables that go in predicate position. Say there is some big capital X such that phi. So once you kind of see that there are these two broadly different approaches towards theorizing about entities from different categories, there are, a question immediately arises. Are there any good reasons to prefer one of these approaches to the other? In fact, are there any good reasons to prefer the type theoretic approach to the uh, Quinean approach? So the main project I'm interested in at the moment is trying to find reasons to prefer the type theoretic approach in various different cases. What I want to do today is to argue that there are indeed reasons to prefer the type theoretic approach concerning the category of propositions. Okay, so that's what I'm after. Uh, I'll give you some terminology and some background assumptions that we can use to make these ideas a bit more precise, then I'll restate the conclusion that I'm after. So, 
One kind of piece of one kind of terminology that it's useful to have to hand comes from the apparatus of type theory. So type theory provides a, a reasonably general way of classifying entities of different kinds. Uh, as I'm going to think about it, at least in the first instance, to start with, it's a way of classifying linguistic entities, at least the type theory I'm going to be interested in. And the way that it, you, the way that it works is as follows. There's a whole load of different types, and you can think of these as corresponding to different syntactic categories. And then you use the types in the syntactic categories in order to characterize well-formedness, grammaticality of sentences. The particular kind of type theory that I'm going to be working with, there are two basic types, E and T. E corresponds to singular terms, and T corresponds to whole sentences, whole declarative sentences. On the handout, wherever you see lowercase x's and y's, these are always variables of type E. They're ordinary, the kind of variables everyone's familiar with from intro logic. And wherever you see p's and q's, these are always variables of type T, variables that go in sentence position. There, in the type theory I'm interested in, there's one way of generating new types from old types. So it's like this. If you've got some sequence of types, tau1 through tau n, then you can stick them inside angle brackets, and what that gives you is a new type. So angle bracket tau1 to tau n corresponds to a category of predicate-like expressions. It has n argument positions, and you get a well-formed sentence by inserting expressions of the corresponding types 1 through n into its various argument positions. So that's a whole load of machinery. Really, for our purposes, there are only four types that really matter. I think it's kind of worth having the general form of the theory stated, but there are really only four types that matter for, purpose, for our purposes today. We've got E, the type of singular terms, T, the type of whole sentences, and then we've got angle bracket EE and angle bracket ET. So angle bracket EE is a two-place predicate like two-place predicate. It's got two argument positions. You get a sentence by inserting singular terms into both of these argument positions things of type E. So it's an ordinary two-place relational predicate. That's type EE. -E. Whereas type ET is just like EE, -E, except for the second argument position. In order to get a sentence from it, you insert a whole sentence into the second argument position rather than a singular term. So if something of type ET in brackets, you get a sentence by putting a singular term in the first argument and a whole sentence in the second. So it's a bit like a mixture between an ordinary relational predicate and a sentential connective. It's like, a senten it's like an ordinary predicate in its first argument. It requires a singular term. And it's like a sentential connective in its second argument. It requires a sentence, at least in order to form sentences. So I'm interested in languages with that kind of structure. And I'm interested in particular in those four categories. Also, the languages that I'm interested in, they allow they're languages in which there are variables of all of these types. And all of these variables can be bound by quantifiers. Right? So you can quantify into arbitrary syntactic positions. Uh, so the languages I'm interested in are higher order languages of a certain kind. They permit quantification into positions other than that of singular term. Okay. There's a certain kind of attitude towards languages like this, which I'm going to be presupposing. 
And basically everything that I say is premised on the legitimacy of this attitude. The attitude says it's perfectly acceptable to take a language with this kind of structure and you can think of it as kind of primitively intelligible. It's intelligible in its own terms. In order to say what uh, sentences of this language means, you don't have to translate them into some previously given first-order language, as someone like Quine might have thought, or you don't have to provide some background semantic theory that involves assigning values to the variables and this kind of thing. The idea is you can take a language with this kind of tight theoretic structure, and at least in principle, you can think of it as in primitively intelligible. It's not, its meaning isn't to be explicated in other terms. So, in particular, the higher order quantification in this language, the quantification on variables of types other than E, is to be taken as kind of sui generis. It's not disguised quantification over sets or properties, it's its own kind of special quantificational thing. Uh, I think, it's a, in some respects, it's a non-standard approach, but it's not entirely heterodox. Something like this is arguably present in Frege, and it's certainly present in people like Williamson. So it's that kind of attitude that I'm interested in. Once you've got a higher order language like this up and running, and you understand what its sentences mean, you can use it to, and in this language, you've got this kind of hierarchy of different categories of expressions given by the background type theory. One can use the language to introduce or explicate talk of a corresponding metaphysical hierarchy of entities, non-linguistic entities. The way that you do that is by using existential quantification in the higher order language in order to explicate what you mean by talk about entities of different types or different levels. So if you've got some type tau, to say that there are entities of type tau, what you mean by that is existential quantification. Given What you mean by that is given by using existential quantifiers in the type language that bind variables of type tau. Right? So you've got this type theoretic language and a hierarchy of categories of expression in it, all of which are available for quantification into those categories. Then you use quantification in this language to say what you mean by talk about this hierarchy of entities. It's not the other way around. That's kind of very important to how I want to think about. Some useful terminology that comes up when you're doing this. You can think of the objects at the bottom of the hierarchy, the entities of type E, they're the objects. And think of entities of types that have angle brackets around them as corresponding to relations. They're relations that hold amongst entities of the categories corresponding to the types inside the angle brackets. Okay, with all of this machinery in place, we can go back to the initial question and the thing that I'm after. The question is, what type of entity are propositions? And we've got this picture, this kind of metaphysical hierarchy of different categories of entity. Whereabouts in the hierarchy should you locate the propositions? The answer that I'm after is propositions are entities of type T. They're not entities of type E. They're not objects. So in going for that kind of view, I think I want to say something which kind of puts me at odds with a lot of the recent literature on propositions. When you look at much of the recent literature on the metaphysics of propositions, what you find is disputes <coughs> between various different theorists who want to identify them with various different kinds of objects. I want to say that's a mistake because propositions shouldn't be understood as any kind of object at all. 
They should be understood as entities of type T, not entities of type E, as is presupposed in these debates. Okay, how am I going to get to this conclusion? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to outline a theoretical role, which I think of as capturing the heart or a part of the heart of the role that propositions are supposed to play. I'm going to argue that objects, entities of type P, are not well suited to occupy this role, whereas entities of type T are well suited to occupy this role. So we should think of the role fillers as entities of type T. So propositions we should think of as entities of type T. Okay. So, that's kind of background and scene setting. So the talk comes in five parts from here, uh, corresponding to the five parts on the handouts. The first thing I want to do is to introduce the relevant theoretical role. Then I'm going to introduce a Quinean approach to finding satisfiers of that role in section two. In section three, I want to present what I think of as a general argument against any version of that view, any version of the view that propositions are objects. In part four, I want to present the outlines of an alternative conception of propositions as entities of type T. In the final section, section five, I want to go back and look at two kinds of arguments for propositions understood as entities of type E, understood as objects that one can find in the literature. One of them in particular is quite a prominent argument, and I want to suggest that neither of these arguments is successful. Okay, so section one on the handout. So again, let's begin with a little bit of terminology. I'm going to be talking a lot about cognitive relations. What I mean by this is relations of thought that hold between ourselves or our minds and external reality, the world that we think about. I think it's clearly true that we enter into relations of thought with the external world. We are able to think about our environment and its inhabitants. When we do so, we're using cognitive, what I'm calling cognitive relations. I want to make a distinction between two different kinds of con cognitive relations. So if you look on the handouts, there are some little examples. Uh, one in a column A, one in a column B. Column A, we've got things like <coughs> perceiving, perceiving tibbles, thinking about tibbles, considering tibbles, examining tibbles. And in column B, we've got things that are typically classified as propositional attitudes, believing that tibbles is hungry, knowing that Tibbles is hungry, hoping that Tibbles isn't hungry, and wishing that Tibbles weren't hungry. Okay, so it's clear, first pass, something different looks to be going on between these two camps. So here's how I want to think of the difference. So I want to distinguish between what I'll call intratype cognitive relations and cross-type cognitive relations. So an intratype cognitive relation is a cognitive relation of type angle bracket EE. So it's a relation that holds between objects, denotations of singular terms, if you like. And I think the A's are all plausibly examples of that kind of phenomenon. The other kind of cognitive relation are cross-type cognitive relations. So these are cognitive relations of type angle bracket ET. So they're, relations, they're the kind of cognitive relations that correspond to cognitive predicates of type ET a cognitive vocabulary with two argument positions, first of which is for singular terms, typically denoting thinkers, and the second of which uh, accept, the second argument position of which accepts whole sentences. I think that 
Believing, knowing, hoping, wishing, these are all plausibly examples of the cross-type cognitive relations. Why is that? Well, when you believe that Tibbles is hungry, the content of what you believe is most naturally expressed by a sentence. Right? Tibbles is hungry. So it's natural to think of the relation involved as type ET. So I'm going to focus throughout on belief as paradigmatic, in my view, of cross-type cognitive relations. But a little caveat, I'm not especially interested in belief per se. In fact, I'm not especially interested in any of the things that are usually called propositional attitudes in and of themselves. What I'm interested in is the phenomenon of cross-type cognitive relatedness and cross-type cognitive relations. If it turns out that none of the things in column B are really cross-type cognitive relations, maybe we don't even have any words in our existing language for cross-type cognitive relations. That's kind of fine by me. What I'm interested in is the phenomenon of cross-type cognitive relatedness per self, rather than any particular examples thereof, uh, or the propositional attitudes as they're typically understood. I think you might think, well, why should we, why should we think that there are any such things? Why should we believe you? Uh, I think there are independent reasons to think that there are uh, cross-type cognitive relations. Uh, and if you read the paper, there's a quick argument in there to kind of try and convince you of that. Uh, I'm not going to go through that now. I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A if you like. Okay, now we've got this apparatus in place, we can say what the, in my view, one of the core theoretical roles behind the notion of proposition is. This is a theoretical role that often goes along with saying things like propositions are the contents of the propositional attitudes or the objects of the propositional attitudes. As I'm thinking about it, the way, the way I want to think about it is propositions are the worldly relata of cross-type cognitive relations. So we've got these cognitive relations that hold between thinkers and aspects of external reality. Some of these relations are cross-type they always hold from a thinker to something else. What goes at the, at the something else end, the worldly end of the cognitive, of these cognitive relations? So, theoretical role for propositions is to be the things that go at that end, at least in the case of cross-type cognitive relations. So it's the occupants of that role that I'm interested in. And once you kind of see that there is this role, you see that you can start having a debate about what kinds of things occupy the role. So, that was the first section. So, the goal in section two is to introduce a Quinean approach to answering these questions. It's Quinean in the sense that I started out with, in the sense that you use first-order quantification to generalize over entities of all ontological categories, all kinds of entities. It's not Quinean in the sense that Quine would particularly endorse the view. All sorts of views go under the label, satisfy this Aquinian in my sense, that Quine himself would have rejected. It's Quinean only in the sense that you must use first order quantification in order to express generalizations. Before kind of going into the specifics, here's kind of perhaps one way to get a handle on how, on how this idea works, on what the idea is. We've got these two different kinds of cognitive relations, intratype and cross-type. Here's, here's one kind of view you might have about the relationship between them. 
that intratype cognitive relations are fundamental. Whenever you've got a cognitive relation, it's some, some kind of intratype cognitive relation is at the foundation. And cognitive relations of all the other kinds are to be explained in terms of these intratype cognitive relations. You can think of that as the general idea. So in particular, where you've got cross-type cognitive relations, you're going to have to find intratype cognitive relations, relations between thinkers and objects, and then somehow or other explain cross-type cognitive relations in terms of those. That's the kind of underlying idea behind the, the Quinean approach. It sounds a little strange in the abstract, but we'll see shortly that uh, something like this is reasonably popular, I think. So, in a bit more detail, this is what the view looks like. The first thing that happens is we introduce a kind of special kind of object called propositions. And we do so using a new special purpose theoretical predicate of type angle bracket E, an ordinary monadic one-place predicate that takes singular terms in its argument position. The predicate is a proposition. Second thing we need is a two-place relation. I'm calling it the Bell relation. And this introduced using a new kind of two-place relation, theoretical pre relational predicate of type EE in the side angle brackets, the Bell predicate. There isn't a kind of handy name for that hanging around, so I'm just going to call it Bell. And the idea is that Bell is the cognitive relation, and the worldly relater of this cognitive relation are the propositions. That's the picture. And then the view says, now we've got this Bell relation and this category of propositions, we can say to have a belief is to bear the Bell relation to the appropriate proposition. So, for the sake of having some examples, there are these three kind of new theoretical objects, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And the view says, look, to believe that Tibbles is purring is to bear the bell relation to Tom. To believe that Dorothy is puzzled is to bear the bell relation to Dick. And to believe that London is sunny, which it's not, is to bear the bell relation to Harry. So that's what the view says. That's the, that's the kind of thing that the view says. There are these three mysterious objects out there, Tom, Dick, and Harry. To believe that Tibbles is purring is to bell one of them. To believe that Dorothy's puzzle is to bell another. And to believe that London's sunny is to bell yet another. Okay, so as it's currently stated, this feels like a bit of a strange view. Um, but I think it's worth noting that this kind of view is going to be forced on us if we want to say that there are propositions, there are things that are believed, and the only apparatus of generalization that we've got to hand is first-order generalization. Because we're going to want to generalize over the things that we stand in cognitive relations to. But if the only apparatus of generalization we've got to hand is first order, we're going to have to first-order generalize over the things that we can be cognitively related to. So that's going to force us into thinking of propositions as objects. <coughs> it's also the case that uh, when you look at the literature on propositions, they're all naturally interpreted as Quinean in this sense, because they identify propositions with objects of one or another antecedently recognized kind. There might be sets of worlds, abstract representations, n-tuples of objects and properties, facts, zero-place properties, so on and so forth. So, it's a strange view, but it, ha it has precedent. And you can see that there are kind of popular theoretical perspectives that are going to lead you into it. Okay. As this Quinean view is currently stated, 
I think it's subject to a serious objection. So what I'm going to do is present the objection, and then I'm going to present a response to the objection on behalf of the quinean. And what that's going to do is it's going to give us the kind of adequate form of a quinean conception of propositions that we can work with in the rest of the talk. So here's the objection. What we wanted was a, a cross-type cognitive relation. Right? We wanted a, a relation whose second relatum were things like Tibbles is purring, Dorothy's puzzled, London is sunny. But that's not what we've got. We've got a relation, an intratype relation, to Tom, Dick, and Harry, these mysterious new objects, rather than to the sun is shining, London, Dorothy's puzzled, so on and so forth. In fact, what we've got so far doesn't even have the right logical form that we are after. So it's not able to do what we want to do it. What we want is a cognitive relation of type ET, whereas the only things that we've got to hand so far are, are cognitive relations of type EE. So the view's going to have to be fixed up somehow. One way to think about, at least as the view currently stands, there's this kind of veil of propositions. And you can stand in cognitive relations to these propositions, these mysterious new objects, but not to the things that we thought we were cognitively related to all along. Tibbles is purring, London's sunny, so on and so forth. So it's fairly clear, I think, what the Quinean is going to have to say in order to respond to this kind of objection. Right? Uh, this is kind of the crossing the column on side two of the handout. What they're going to have to do is introduce some new relational apparatus to hook these propositions up with the sentential phenomenon that we started out being interested in. Right? So I'm going to call this the proposition reality relation where it's just a capital PR sometimes on the handout. And this thing is going to have to be introduced using a relational predicate of type ET inside angle brackets. Something with a singular term, a proposition, the propositions in its first argument, and that can connect those propositions up to sentential phenomena. So the picture that you end up with on this kind of view is the following. Whenever you have a cross-type thinker-reality relation, a cross-type cognitive relation, you can think of it as decomposing into two components. First of all, there's an intratype cognitive relation. Holds from thinkers to these mysterious new objects, the propositions. And then there's a cross-type relation holds from these propositions to sentential aspects of reality. Tibbles is purring, the sun is shining, and so on and so forth. So cross-type cognitive relations always get mediated via intratype relations to proposition to these objects called propositions, and then cross-type relations to uh, extra-propositional reality. And then the view says, and this is the goal of the proposition-reality relation, to provide the kind of second, the second horn of that. Then what the view says is, look, to believe that P is to bear the Bell relation to the unique X, the unique proposition X, that bears the proposition reality relation to P. The unique X such that X bears PR to P. So we can put this, this sounds a bit strange still, we can put it in more familiar terms by introducing some terminology. Let the proposition that P be the unique X such that X is a proposition and X bears the proposition reality relation to P. The proposition that P is the unique X such that X bears this new proposition reality relation to P. 
Put in those terms, the view sounds a bit more familiar, something that uh, various people have endorsed at various points. It says, look, to believe that P is to bear the Bell relation to the proposition of P, where Bell is the cognitive relation, and we've got these entities, the proposition of P. And then it's kind of a bit clearer what's going on with these funny entities, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Right. Tom, the thing that, so to believe that Tibbles is purring is to bear the Bell relation to Tom. What's Tom? Well, Tom is the proposition that Tibbles is purring. I, Tom is the unique X such that X bears the proposition reality relation to Tibbles is purring. And so on and so forth. So what we've got now is the kind of outline form of an adequate Quinean conception of propositions. This version isn't subject to the objection that I just gave. Uh, if we're going to be Quineans, this, I think, is the kind of approach that we need to adopt. The question that immediately comes up is how to do something better than just fill in, fill in the form, than give us the form. How to fill in the form with the details. In particular, what is this proposition reality relation? The Quinean is going to have to tell us that. So there's a challenge that arises at this point. What the Quinean is going to have to do is explain why bearing the Bell relation to something that bears the proposition reality relation to P thereby places you in cognitive contact with P. Right? It's cross-type cognitive relations we're interested in. We want an account of what it is to be cross-type cognitively related to P. The view says you do so by belling something that bears the proposition reality relation to P. So onus is on the view to say what the proposition reality relation is and to do so in such a way that it explains why belling something that bears that relation to P places one in cross-type cognitive contact with P. So that's the challenge that the Quinean needs to address. The claim that I want is that no extant account of this relation satisfies this challenge. Right? And the, the, by the extant accounts there, the, I mean the accounts that you get by going through the literature on propositions and looking at what the various, various candidates are that you can extract from it. Uh, I'm going to argue that no extant theory satisfies that challenge. And I think the form of the argument that I want to give is quite a general one. I think it at least suggests that no possible account of, of the proposition reality relation is going to satisfy that challenge. Okay, so that's what happens in the next section, section three. Okay, so now we've got this, now we've got this Quinean theory of propositions or the outline of one up and running we can ask, what's the proposition reality relation? So what I want to do in this section is to look at some different accounts of this relation and argue that they're not adequate. I'm only going to look at one account in any detail, and then I'm going to suggest that the style of argument I give against it generalizes to all others. But before I do that, there's one account I want to look at which I think the style of objection doesn't generalize to. So this is what's called option one in section three says, look, the proposition reality relation is primitive. There's nothing more to be said about it. There just is this relation. You can stand in it to propositions. Sorry, there just is this relation that propositions stand in to P's and Q's. 
And this relation is just such that if, you've been, if you stand in an intratype cognitive relation to something that stands in this relation to P, it just makes it the case that you're cross-type in cross-type cognitive contact with P. I think I don't have any kind of knockdown argument against that kind of view, but I think it's kind of uh, unsatisfying and not explanatory. Perhaps at the end of the day, you just have to take this as primitive, and we've learned something. This is, this is bedrock. Uh, but I think that would be kind of surprising, and it would be better to kind of explore the alternatives first. So I'm just going to set that view to one side. So here's the second option. It's called option two on the handout. For x to bear the proposition reality relation to p is for x to represent the p. The PR relation is X represents the P. So the general picture you get is this. The way that you get into cross-type cognitive contact with P is by standing in some, something like the Bell relation, some intratype cognitive relation to something that represents the P. That's the idea. So I think, so here's why I don't like this kind of view. In general, I think it's not the case that being intratype cognitively related to something that represents the P places one in any interesting kind of cross-type cognitive contact with P. Right? Typically, it is not the case that being intratype cognitively related to something that represents the P does not place one in cross-type in any interesting kind of cross-type cognitive contact with P. So I'm going to give you an example to get you into a feel for why I think that. So let's just look at some kind of familiar humdrum cases. I think that paintings, photographs, maps, at least certain instances, these all represent the P for a wide range of P. Uh, these are also the kinds of things that we can stand in very close and intimate intratype cognitive, really, cognitive relations to. So take the case of a map. I think you can be arbitrarily, closely, and intimately, and directly intratype cognitively related to a map. Maps are objects, after all. Without being cross-type cognitively related to any of the P's and Q's that the map represents. There are at least three ways in which this can happen. Okay. So we're now on to side three of the handout. There are at least three ways in which this can happen. You might have no view about the particular places represented by the map. Right? If I'm looking at a map of London, and I don't realise that it's a map of central London, I don't realise that such and such building represents the Institute of Education, then I can be studying the map as closely as I like, and thereby intratype cognitively related to it, as closely as you might like, without realising that it represents that the Institute of Education is this, that, and the other. Okay. Because you don't know what the particular, which places are represented by features on the map, you're not going to be in, you can be in very closely intratype cognitively related to it without being cross-type cognitively related to any of the singular contents about those particular places that it represents. So it's not uncontroversial that things work like that, but I think that I like that kind of thing. A second kind of way that it can happen is you might have no views about 
what kinds of features are represented by the symbols on the map. If you're looking at an OS map and you don't realize that little blue triangles represent trig points, then you can be studying the map as closely as you like, but not being in it and looking at this little triangle, wondering what's going on, what's this telling me, without realizing that the map is representing there's a trig point 10 feet to the left of such and such river, or there's a trig point in a youth hostel 100 yards apart from each other, whatever it happens to be. If you don't know what the little triangles represent, then you're not going, you can be studying the map as closely as you like without being cross-type cognitively related to those contents that it represents. Third way that it can happen is you might have no view about how relative placement of symbols on the map determines the representational content of the map itself. If you don't realize that placing things at a certain spatial relation to one another on the map means that the map represents the things represented by those features as themselves in a certain spatial relationship, then, again, you can be studying the map as closely as you like and thereby intratype cognitively related to it without being cross-type cognitively related to the contents it represents about spatial relations, spatial relations between the represented features. Okay, the lesson I want to take from this is that typically... Intratype, being intratype cognitively related to something that represents the P does not place you in cross-type cognitive contact with P, cross-type cognitive relation with P. The question is, what more has to be the case in order for it to do so? I think there's a natural kind of answer to this question. It's the only kind of answer that I can see, but it's not a kind of answer which is available to Quineans. So if you think about the case with the map, it's natural what you have to say. Look, you have to know or believe or just have some view about uh, what the symbols on the map represent, which places the symbols on the map represent, and how relative placement of symbols on the map determines representational properties of the map as a whole. Right? If you have views about those things, then studying the map is going to place you into cross-type cognitive contact with things that are represented by it, at least if your, your views are correct. But all of those kinds of things themselves involve cross-type cognitive relations. Right? To know what the, what the symbols on the map represent is to, or to believe, to have beliefs about what the symbols on the map represent, is to believe that such and such kind of symbol represents such and such kind of real-world phenomenon. It's believed that blue triangles on the map represent trig points in the real world. But that is itself a cross-type cognitive relation. It's a cross-type cognitive relation to blue symbols on the map represent trig points in the real world. But because the project that the Quineans embarked on is one of explaining all intratype cognitive relations in terms of cross-type cognitive relations, they can't avail themselves of cross-type cognitive relations at this point in explaining how... Uh, yeah, they can't avail themselves of cross-type cognitive relations at this point. I kind of blurred talking about maps and propositions at that point, so let me try and correct myself. It's In the case of the maps, it's relatively clear what kinds of background views one needs 
in order to be able to go from intratype cognitive relations to the map to cross-type cognitive relations to the things represented by the map. You need to have views about what the symbols represent, how relative placement of symbols determines representational content of the map as a whole, so on and so forth. Now, let's move from the case of maps to the case of propositions. I think that there's no relevant disanalogy between the case of maps and the case of propositions in this case. If propositions are the kinds of things that have parts and constituents that determine their representational properties, then knowing what they represent will allow you to figure out the representational properties of propositions as a whole. But again, that would involve standing in cross-type cognitive relations to things like such and such constituent represents such and such. Or, yeah, that's what I want to say. What this means is That's what, that's what I want to say. So take the lesson from the case of maps, export it to the case of propositions. In the case of maps, it's clear what you have to, what kinds of, what has to be going on in order for intratype cognitive relation to a map to place you in cross-type cognitive relation to what the map represents. I think the same has to go in the case of propositions. I can't see any relevant disanalogy between the two cases. But it's not available to the Quinean to take that kind of line to explain how being intratype cognitively related to a proposition can place you in cross-type cognitive contact with what the proposition represents. The reason for that is that the Quinean, in theorizing about propositions, has been forced into giving an account of cross-type, a reduction in effect of cross-type cognitive relatedness to intratype cognitive relatedness plus something else. But if you have to appeal to cross-type, prior cross-type cognitive relations, in order to get that reduction to work, then you've got something which is circular or, regress or objectionably regressive. So, at least on this view of, how, of what the proposition reality relation is, I think Quinean is, the Quinean approach isn't a goer. I think that exactly the same goes for all the other accounts of the proposition reality relation that I can find. So these are listed on the handout as options 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. I won't go through them all in detail. The general idea is this. Whatever the proposition reality relation might be, in order for being intratype cognitively related to something that stands in that relation to P, to place you in cross-type cognitive contact with P, you need to have some prior views about whether or not that thing stands in the cross-type proposition reality relation to P. In the absence of any such views, then it's totally mysterious why being intratype cognitively related to one of these things would place you in any kind of cognitive contact with P. If you have views about that, then it's not mysterious. But in that case, You've got prior cross-type cognitive relations that's being used to explain why the intratype cognitive relation suffices for standing in cross-type cognitive contact with P. But that, at least in the context of this Quinean project, is going to be either circular or objectionably regressive. Yeah. 
So I think the style of argument that refutes option two generalizes to all of the other accounts of propositions that I can find out there in the literature. If you're dubious about that, I'm kind of happy to discuss during the Q&A. Uh, but that means we should move on. Okay for time, about 15 minutes. Okay, so section four. So I've argued that no Quinean conception of propositions is adequate. What I want to do in this part is to briefly sketch an alternative conception of propositions as entities of type T. How's that going to go? Well, I'm not going to give you any positive analysis of what the relation of belief is, right? what the attitude of belief is, or any other cross-type cognitive relation. The kind of view that I'm after is really just opposition to all views of a certain kind. Right? The kind of view that, I'm in, that I want to put myself in opposition to says, look, the, wherever you've got a cross-type ET relation, cognitive, really, cognitive, really, cognitive relation, that decomposes into two things. First, an EE relation to a certain kind of object, then an ET relation from those objects to the things that you have beliefs about. I want to say no kind of view of that form is correct. So kind of cut out the, mid the middleman view. I want to think of belief and other cross-type cognitive relations as ET re e relations of type ET that don't decompose into an EE relation plus then an ET relation or an EE cognitive relation plus then an ET <laughs> relation. And that's basically what the view consists of. That's what it is to think of propositions as entities of type T. The relata, the cognitive relations, are themselves entities of type T, not entities of type B. So, as I'm thinking about it, this kind of view isn't a thesis about kind of ordinary English syntax or ordinary English semantics or anything like that. This is a view about the correct form for metalogical form for metaphysical theorizing about the nature of propositions and cognitive, <coughs> cognitive relations. Here's a kind of, if you're going to endorse a view like this, you should be able to recapture all of the kind of important truths and generalizations that appear to be available to the Quinean should be available to be recaptured in these terms. One kind of case that stands out of note is Quineans are able to express generalizations about over what people believe, generalizations over the contents of people believes, people's beliefs. The question is how to be able to recapture that. So I'm thinking of generalizations like Nick believes something false. How to make sense of that without proposition, without objects, objects that are propositions available to generalize over. The Quinean has an easy answer. They can just employ ordinary first order quantification there is some object X such that Nick believes X, and it's not the case that X is true. That's one of the things that pushes people into Quinean theories, uh, Quinean approaches to propositions, is they only have first order quantification available with which to make sense of this kind of generalization. From, a type from the type theorist perspective, however, you can use higher order quantification in order to capture these kinds of generalizations. You can quantify on variables that go in the position of whole sentences and say things like there is some p such that Nick believes that p and it's not the case that p. Because variables open for quantification 
can go inside the arguments of sentential operators and inside the scope of believes that, right, because it requires a whole sentence after it, you can quantify into both positions simultaneously and thereby capture claims like Nick believes something false. Okay, so that's the view. This kind of view, it has a certain kind of metaphysical upshot. This is kind of premised already. Right? And this kind of view, propositions aren't objects. And so there's no kind of deep metaphysical question about what kind of object propositions are. You just shouldn't be entering into that kind of debate. Propositions are entities of type T, not entities of type, type E, unlike sets, abstract representations, n-tuples, facts, so on and so forth. Okay, so there are various kind of uh, similar views to this out there in the literature. Uh, the one that kind of stands out, there are kind of three listed on the handout. Pryor's view, a kind of view due to Mark Richard and Jeff Speaks, and also Soames, King, Speaks, and Hanks have got similar views. Uh, I'll just say something about Pryor's view, and then I'll move on to the final part of the talk. So Pryor also used quantification into, sentential, into sentence position, quantification on variables of type T, in order to eliminate, as he thought of it, and talk about propositions and facts. So what I want to say is very much in the, in the ballpark of what Pryor was after. Really, the only kind of difference that we've got going on here is that Pryor, when you look at his... When you look at him, he was also to some extent interested in ordinary natural language syntax and semantics. And I want to take no stand on ordinary natural language syntax and semantics and the proper and form of belief attributions and things like this. I just want to engage in a metaphysical project about the, prop, the best form for theorizing about cross-type cognitive relations. Okay, so let's move on to the final part of the talk. So that's the positive conception in as much as there is one. There can't be that much to say because I want to say, look, quantification on variables of type T is primitive, sui generis, not explicable in other terms. And then because I want to re reduce talk about propositions to uh, talk generalization over propositions to generalization on variables of type T, it means that there isn't that much to say positive positively by way of elucidation. Uh, so it's partly a negative project and partly it's a project the positive character of which is only available to someone who already understands quantification on variables of type T. Okay, so here's the final part of the handout. This is section five. What I want to do very briefly is to look at two arguments that are reasonably prominent in the literature. Not the only arguments, but these two are especially prominent, I think for propositions understood as objects, entities of typing. Here's the first argument. It says, it's got two, two premises, one and two. His propositions are widespread in proper semantics, kind of linguistic semantics, not the kind of toy semantics that I do. It says proper semantics is a kind of first order enterprise. All the quantification in that is first order. So if proper semantics is true, then E propositions, a propositions understood as objects, entities of type E, have got to exist. Proper semantics, you might think, is true, so E propositions exist. Okay, so there are various responses that you, one can take to this style of argument. Uh, I've got three of them on the handout. 
My, the ones that I prefer are the, sec are the second two. So I think, there are, I think there are two different ways of accepting the conclusion of this argument without, uh, without myself being overly troubled by it. So here's the first. Uh, we can accept that propositions understood as entities of type E, understood as objects, exist without accepting that, prop that these E propositions are the relata of cognitive, re of cognitive relations. Right? All we need is for these entities to be the meanings of sentences and of that clauses, or, and wherever else they're used in proper semantics. That's primarily where they're used. Yeah. What this argument does is it gives a role for propositions understood as objects in natural language semantics that's one role for them, but the role that I'm interested in is as relater of uh, the attitudes in effect. And this argument doesn't tell us anything about that. You might well think that different things occupy those two roles. Here's another kind of response along the similar lines. The argument doesn't even force us to conclude that uh, propositions understood as objects are the meanings of sentences and that clauses, or the meanings of any kind of linguistic expression. All it forces us to do is to think that propositions understood as objects are semantic values. Right? But semantic values are a kind of formal representatives of meanings. Right? They're formal represent, they're devices that linguistic semanticists use in order to represent meanings. So accepting that there are these objects that serve as semantic values doesn't tell you anything in and of itself about the metaphysical nature of the meanings themselves, or the aspects of reality that sentences are related to in virtue of their meaning. The meanings that are thereby represented by talking about semantic values might well have the kind of type theoretic structure that I'm interested in. That's entirely consistent with that. OK, so I'll flesh out this, this idea a little bit more in response to the second argument. So here's the second argument. This is an argument, it's prominent in someone like Stephen Schiffer, for example. You look at the things we mean. He kind of opens with something like this kind of argument. First premise, A, the following English argument is valid. Nick believes everything Dorothy says. Dorothy says that indicatives don't have truth conditions. So Nick, of course, believes that indicatives don't have truth conditions. Second premise, B, English quantification is always first order. So the argument that I just gave has the following form, which is down in the bottom left of the final side. Bayes says, for all first order x, Dorothy says x, then Nick believes x, where says and believes are EE predicates. Dorothy says, or it's EE saying A, where A is a kind of singular term that regiments that indicatives don't have truth conditions, therefore, Nick believes A. Right, that's the kind of first orderization of that English argument. And it's valid, as it should be. So, if that's right, it seems that certain English quantifiers, they need domains of uh, propositions understood as objects in order for them to range over. And because the predicates that we've got here are says and believes, it seems it's going to have to follow that these E propositions are what we say and believe. I, 
they are the relater of these cross-type cognitive relations, saying and believing. So it seems that this kind of argument does present a direct threat to the kind of view that I'm after. <clears throat> so I think there are two kinds of responses to this. One kind of response is to deny that English quantification is always first order, or to deny that that clauses are really singular terms. You find versions of this kind of view in kind of Roosevelt, Ryo and Yablo, uh, Grover and Belknap, so on and so forth. I'm reasonably sympathetic towards that kind of view, but I also think that uh, we shouldn't have to be engaging in the kind of nitty-gritty of ordinary language, syntax, and semantics in order to defend the kind of metaphysical picture that I'm after. Uh, they're kind of slightly different concerns. So I'd like a better response to that, and I think there's one available. The kind of response that I am most attracted to is kind of maximally concessive, in a sense, to this style of argument. It wants to grant all of A, B, and C, but it wants to deny that it follows from that, that E propositions, propositions understood as objects, are what we say and believe. So there's kind of the details of how to do that on the handout for those who are kind of keen on it, but I'll just kind of, rather than working through them, I'll sketch the idea for you. The idea is this. Suppose that you speak a first-order language, or your quantification is first-order. But suppose that nonetheless, there are various kind of higher-order generalizations out there that you want to communicate with other speakers of this language. In that case, you're going to have to find some way of simulating higher-order quantification using first-order quantification inside your language. You're going to have to find some way of using first-order quantification in your language to communicate higher-order generalizations. How are you going to do that? Well, here's one way of doing that. Just let there be a collection of objects which are going to serve as representatives of the higher-order entities, the entities of type T, that you want to communicate generalizations about. Okay. So you've got a domain of objects, and they're going to serve as representatives of <coughs> the higher order entities that we want to express generalizations about. We're going to need some kind of cross-type relation between these objects and the higher typed entities that is going to one-one correlate the ones with the domain of objects with the higher order entities we're generalizing over. It's going to one-one correlate. Think of it as a, treating objects as representatives of the higher type entities. And then if we've got predicates that express relations on these objects, they're going to have kind of image relations that express re correspond on the higher order entities. And provided these things are correlated in the appropriate kind of way, you can use quantification over the objects that are representatives and predicates expressing relations on those representatives in order to express claims which are at least necessarily equivalent to corresponding higher order generalizations for counterpart relations on the higher type entities. The kind of precise details of how to make that work in this particular case are in the last kind of underneath where it says overly simple implementation on site four. What this means is that it's perfectly possible to communicate these higher-order generalizations 
using a language which is first order, provided you've got appropriate representatives to hand. Okay. However, there's a kind of problem that immediately comes up, is that there are going to be too many choices of representatives. Any collection of objects of appropriate cardinality is going to suffice. And once you've got some way of assigning and assigning entities as objects as representatives of higher type entities, any permutation of the objects is going to correspond to another way of assigning representatives. So there just seem to be too many different collections of representatives and ways of using them to represent higher type entities. What should we make of this? Well, I think there are kind of three options, and I, I'm reasonably attracted to all of them. One option is just say, look, there's radical indeterminacy as to which representatives we use and which way of treating these things as representatives is relevant. It doesn't matter which one you pick, the same higher order generalizations are recoverable each time. So there's no barrier to communication from this kind of, from such radical indeterminacy. Another kind of approach says, look, maybe in any given context of communication, there's just some kind of arbitrary selection. Different ones in different contexts, perhaps. Again, it doesn't really matter because the same higher order generalizations are recoverable no matter which, which representatives are chosen. So that's not going to matter. Maybe even there's radical differences between different speakers within the same context. Again, because the same higher order generalizations are recoverable from each, and it's the higher order generalizations that we want to communicate, it doesn't really matter as far as communication goes. I think that none of these approaches is kind of problematic for the kind of view I'm after. So I think that even if propositions are entities of type T, and even if natural language quantification is always first order, it's nonetheless possible to express the relevant higher order generalizations in a certain sense using that language. Okay. That's everything I want to say. Thank you very much.